0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a real privilege to preach to y'all and share the word with y'all. Yeah, and I struggled a long time with preparing the sermon and finishing it. Uh, Months ago, when Jay and I were talking about which psalm I wanted to preach on, I decided on Psalm 13 because it's about suffering. And at the time, I thought, oh, I like talking about suffering because it builds character, especially when... I'm training in the Army. You go through a lot of sucky situations. And we have a saying in the Army, embrace the suck. That's how you get through it. And so I thought it would be fun to talk about suffering. At first, I felt led by the Holy Spirit to use a very personal story in my life to, to illustrate the psalm. Um, and it gets really personal for me. And I went back and forth about sharing the story with you. And as I started preparing and writing the sermon, a lot of old emotions were brought back up. So I was recollecting all the details, and sometimes it would be too much for me, and I had to stop writing, struggle through those emotions. And sometimes I had to fight back tears because I was in a coffee shop, and it's kind of embarrassing to cry in public. I'm going to try not to cry here too. But I prayed about it, and I knew that I had to follow through with it because the Holy Spirit, he told me to share the story with you, and I felt that it would bless you, just as me going through this will bless you. And so let us read God's word.
1: How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord.
0: How long, O Lord, how long? And we can just hear the anguish in David's voice here as we read the psalm. And his feelings, they can resonate with us. We've all suffered some great loss at some point of our life. And the older we get, the more losses we will experience. And when we lose something precious to us, we grieve. And, And grief is a beast. We can either let it consume us into oblivion or we can embrace it. We can work through those emotions, feel every single mo- emotion, and on the other side, we come through healed. And I let my suffering be a motivator. Throughout my entire life, I let all my sufferings motivate me to push me forward. And a lot of our suffering happens a lot in our families. And my family is not picture perfect. We were kind of messed up, but what family isn't a little bit weird? And so, although I grew up going to church, I couldn't really say I grew up in a Christian family. And a lot of my brothers and sisters, whenever they share their testimony, they'll start with, I grew up in a Christian family. But that was not my experience. I'm not knocking when those brothers and sisters are sharing their testimony because that's real for them. That's true for them. And it's true growing up in a Christian family. But personally, I honestly can't say that. Uh, To give you some background on my family, my mom, she did take us to church, my sisters and I almost every Sunday, but dad, he rarely came to church with us. And for the majority of Filipinos, I'm Filipino if you didn't know that, um, you were most likely Catholic. It just so happened my mom's side of the family, we were the 10% Protestant that were in the Philippines. But my dad, if you are a majority of the Filipinos, you who did profess um, Catholicism, only really when you look at the statistics, a third of the Catholics in the, in the Philippines regularly attended mass, and so I guess you could call them the Christmas and Easter Christians. And so my dad, he was one of those so-called Catholic, uh, cultural Catholics. And so he was one of 10 children, so very big family. He was the second to youngest child, and they also grew up fairly poor. And so even though my family, we grew up going to church almost every Sunday, uh, the rest of that week was a different story because that Sunday did not connect with Monday through Saturday. And I remember a story my oldest sister shared with me about our dad. Uh, when he was able to start driving, maybe 15 or 16, uh, he was helping the family make some money by driving the jeepney. And if you're not familiar with the Philippines and what the jeepney is, basically what it is, it's a repurposed army jeep. And the, the U.S. gave it to the Philippines after World War II. And we just repurposed them, refurbished them into public transport. And so when they were refurbished, they could comfortably sit about 16 people. But on average, you'll see about 30 people riding in a jeepney. And sometimes there'll be people on the roof. And since all the jeepneys were privately owned, the jeepneys, uh, the owners, they would paint their jeepneys all different colors, bright colors and very gaudy colors um, you will see their nicknames or maybe their kids' names painted on. You'll see things like Angel, Baby Boy, or Jake and Jane, except they were spelled J-H-A-K-E and J-H-A-N-E. And legit, one time I, I saw a picture on Google of a face of Jesus on the front. On the door was a Superman S. On the side was a mural of an eagle and a tiger just to give you a context of just how ridiculous the jeepneys are, uh, I guess to drum up some business. So my dad, he grew up in the mean streets of Manila during the 60s and 70s. And so that was a time of economic boom, but also of civil unrest and crime. And so my dad, he often slept in the jeepney to protect it from car thieves. And so because of that, he learned to be a very scrappy man. My mom had a different upbringing. She came from a big family also, but she grew up middle class, Herself and all her siblings got college degrees. She got a nursing degree. Um, My dad, he only finished eighth grade. And we're also unusual as a family because, well, in general, most immigrants, they immigrate as a family unit. Uh, My parents, they didn't meet until they were here in the States, actually. They met in Corpus Christi. And then they dated for a couple months. They got married, and they moved to Houston since there's the big medical center there. And my mom's a nurse, and so it was, you know, a good opportunity for her. But as far as I could remember, just looking back on my childhood, on my family, and comparing it to my friends, um, comparing my parents' marriage to my friends' marriage, it, it didn't look the same. i like like, there's something weird going on here with my parents. It didn't feel like that they love each other. And whenever my family would go out on weekends, uh, dad, if he did come with us, He would get bored, he'd complain, and he'd want to go home. And whenever we go to parties, and if you've ever been to a Filipino party, we do them big. Uh, And they would be loud, there'd be karaoke going on, tons of food. But he would get bored and complain again and just want to go home, even after being at the party for like an hour or two. And my family behind his back, we'd call him the party pooper. And so as you can tell, our family had various little rough patches. But the biggest trial I experienced in my family, and this is a huge part of my story that motivates me, the suffering that motivates me, is um, it was back in 2010 during Thanksgiving. So at the time, I was a sophomore in college. I was in RTC, so I was working towards a, a career in the Army. And so I had an opportunity through our RTC program. We somehow had some connections with ESPN to help them with handling some of their equipment on the field at the UT a and Thanksgiving game. I mean... Who would pass up an opportunity like that to be on the football field during one of the biggest games of the season? And so because of that, my mom and my oldest sister, they visited me the day before Thanksgiving, Um, and then they went back to Houston for Thanksgiving, and I stayed here in Austin. And at the time, my sister was discharged from the Army. Her husband was still in, he was in Afghanistan at the time, so she was staying with our parents for the time being. And after they got back home to Houston, my parents got into one little fight, into another little fight, and it just escalated into, it just exploded into a big, ugly argument. And it got so bad that my mom, or rather, my dad, hit my mom. And it really was lucky that my sister was there at home, because she was able to get him off my mom, get him in a chokehold, and told him to get out of the house, But instead, he just went upstairs to his bedroom, and my mom let him cool down for a bit, and she went to check on him and found him loading a gun. She started freaking out, as you do when you see a gun. My sister heard the commotion. She went to check what was going on, saw the gun, got my mom out of the house, and called the police. And soon after, the police arrived, and they put my mom and my sister in the squad car around the corner, They woke up the neighbors, got them out of their houses, and the SWAT team waited outside the house for three hours. At some point, my dad, he went downstairs, probably to get himself some some dinner. Um, And then at some point, towards the end of the three hours, they saw my dad running upstairs through the window, and they they were assuming that he was going for the gun. And so they broke down the door, went in after him, tackled him, and arrested him. And this entire time, I'm still in Austin, none the wiser that all this is happening, until the day after my sister, she called me and told me that everything that had happened. And every emotion that you're feeling right now, I, I felt all of that. I felt ang- anger, sadness, surreal, disbelief and regret. How could this happen? Is this even real? There's, there's no possible way that this could be true. And why did I even decide to go to that stupid football game? And we all have experienced some agri- grim event in our life. And some of you have had the courage to share that with our church family. Be that at Good Friday service this, this year, or men's and women's retreat, in our parish groups, in private with someone you trust. Or maybe you've never told a single person. And to this day, you've been keeping that to yourself, and you're holding that in. And that's all a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. And all too often I see in our modern American Christianity, especially in our music, we're all happy-clappy. And especially the contemporary music. It's all upbeat, it's energetic, the lyrics are very catchy. I'm not saying that that's bad, I'm not knocking it, it's not unbiblical either. But it appears to me to be the overwhelmingly public face of Christianity when we do hashtag too-blessed-to-be-stressed. Now, of course, there is necessity to that. There's necessity to joyful worship. In fact, joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. But a lot of our modern worship music, especially on the radio or you find in most churches, it's focusing on being positive and encouraging. It is done to a fault, though. That's a good thing, but it's overdone where we don't even acknowledge the difficult, dark parts in our lives. We mask it over. Which, when you think about it, it's human nature to do. We want to run away from our problems. We pretend that they don't exist. Because if we don't see it, it's not real. And we go, la, 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 it's not real, it's not there. But there's some beneficial things to that, with being positive and encouraged and motivated. And importantly, there's a biblical aspect to that. Being positive, being motivated, being encouraged help us to keep moving forward. In Scripture, it says that God is on our side. He is sovereign. That is is a true fact. He is in control of the whole darn universe. He will never forsake us. He will never leave us. Because of the character of God, we can be hopeful and joyful and optimistic. But the drawback to that of being overly focused on that is we don't allow ourselves to acknowledge our negative emotions we don't admit our sadness our anger our depression our anguish and our despair we conceal don't feel don't let them know and even worse we get the wrong impression that admitting our negative emotions to god can be a bad or sinful thing and we wrongly conclude that because we're supposed to be so grateful to god that We don't dare question God. But Psalm 13 says otherwise. In fact, the whole Bible disagrees with you if you think that is true. I mean, you have Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and even the book of Psalms. And today's scripture is a prime example of that. This is a a lament psalm. And we see in the first four verses, David is lamenting his situation to God. He questions God directly, asking, How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? Now, that statement itself, how long will you forget me forever? I just have to go on a little tangent about this, but that's kind of a weird statement. Logically and grammatically, it doesn't make sense because David is both saying, how long will you forget me? And he's also saying, you will forget me forever. But when you really think about that, about his situation at that time, It makes emotional, psychological sense. We see just how desperate David feels. He is at his wit's end. He feels like he's on the verge of death. And biblical scholars have guessed and estimated that he's probably writing this psalm during the time when his very own son, Absalom, is out rebelling against him, competing for the throne, and is even willing to kill his own dad just so he can be the king. And so David, he repeats the statement, How long? Four times in this short song. And each and every time, the intensity and the pitch of his cries get they louder, they get louder, and it really does feel like God has forgotten him forever, or worse, that God has turned away in anger and apathy. His anxiety, we can hear, it increases with each single cry at thought of such a cruel God. And that might be uncomfortable or even unthinkable for us as modern american christians with our happy clappy contemporary christian music that we complain to god that is an unthinkable thing especially just how david complains here how long will you hide your face and when we think about the book of psalms as a whole we know that it's a a book of prayers of poems and we assume that they're written to praise god Um, when we think about and talk about singing the psalms uh, we think the music would be happy and joyful and upbeat. But when you count the number of lament psalms, there are 65 to 67, depending who you ask, 65 to 67 lament psalms. And there are 150 total psalms. And so that means almost half of the psalms in the Bible are lament psalms. And the fact that this psalm and all the other psalms that are lament psalms are included in the Bible, it shows us that God cares about our feelings. He cares about our anguish our pain, our concerns. He wants to hear them. There's no sin that we confess to God that will disgust him and make him reject us. There's no sin that we confess to him that will make him cringe and creep him out. And so we continue looking at David's complaints in verses 2, 3, and 4. And we see some interesting things here. Uh, The first thing that David asks: how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? To the ancient Israelites and to us as Christians, it should be no brainer that nothing or no one should be exalted over God. Yet for David, from his perspective, he he's in such anguish that he feels feels like he has hit rock bottom. In fact, his own son is coming to kill him, and it looks like God has failed him. It looks like God has failed to be God. It looks like the bad guys are winning. And cognitively, we, we think that God is in control. That is a theological, biblical truth. But emotionally, when, if we were going through this exact same thing that David is or you're going through a similar situation, we f- don't feel like that at all. And at times like this, it, it makes us think that why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or we flip that statement on its head and we say, why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Those are challenging questions to an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. And that's the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. And some of us, we might be avoiding to ask those questions, let alone entertain them, because it feels like it's blasphemous to question God. But on the other hand, some of you might be struggling through those exact same questions right now. And David, he continues his psalm telling, or probably yelling at God, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. And the word here, considered, that can be translated as look. As in look, listen, say something. And a good example of that, yelling in the, the face of a seemingly silent God, a, a good way to understand that, it's like when you're arguing with your significant other. And so... When Trish and I, when we get in arguments, the way our personalities are, I get quiet, I try to be calm, and try is the key word, and be collected and try to choose to, my words carefully. But she says what's on her mind. She tells you what she's thinking about and what she's feeling, and she lets you have it. And then when she's done talking, I'm still thinking, trying to process, trying to carefully choose my words, and she tells me, Say something. And that's exactly how David feels too. He's a slighted lover. He's demanding his God to answer for his actions, or in this case, his inactions. David is demanding that God light up his eyes. And biblically, we know there's a lot of biblical imagery about God's face being a source of light, and thus is a source of life. He's pleading with God to give him life. He's pleading to not let him sleep the sleep of death. And he asked God to save him from the darkness of death. And when you die, I mean, your eyes are closed. You know, when we're sleeping, our eyes are closed. And so there's a connection there of sleep and death. And there's a, a poetic comparison here of light versus darkness and life versus death. And we see here David, he's longing for life and not death. He's longing for God and not oblivion. And so it might seem scandalous to us to express our anger to God but he's, he's a big boy. His feelings aren't going to get hurt when we tell him what we're really thinking because he already knows what we're thinking. He, he knows exactly what we're going through. In fact, one of God's character traits is, being, is having long suffering, which means, to define the word, by using the word to define it, it means to suffer long. He doesn't just put up with our anger, but he completely, totally, utterly forgives us, and he fully, lovingly, internally extends his grace to us. Which is exactly how David ends his psalm. He doesn't, even though he spent the majority of the psalm yelling and complaining to God, he doesn't end there. He, he doesn't just stop with complaints. He doesn't let himself spiral into pessimism, cynicism, and nihilism, and atheism. But rather, he says, ending his psalm, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your suffering. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David doesn't let this turn him further away from God, but rather he lets it drive him closer to God. He runs to God. David, he feels like God has forgotten him forever, but instead he chooses to trust in God and his proven steadfast love. And although in the beginning of the psalm, we see that he believes that if he does die, he he believes his enemies will rejoice over him. But despite this, he chooses to rejoice in God. He believes that his enemies will be exalted over him in victory, but instead he chooses to exalt God. David, he does all of this in spite of his feelings and his circumstances. He doesn't let his situation change or affect his beliefs about God, what he knows to be true about God. And yes, absolutely, David, he, he lets God know what he's feeling. He howls at God in this psalm. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't end his prayer there. He keeps going in his prayer, and he comes to a, peace, a place of peace, reminding himself about, about God's character and about God's past actions and his faithfulness. Amen? And so back to my family, if you were me, I wouldn't, dis- I wouldn't blame you for completely disowning my dad. I mean, that would be the logical thing to do. In fact, my mom, she did kick out my dad out of the house. After he was released from jail, he moved out, moved in with his younger brother in an apartment somewhere in Houston. Both my older sisters, they ended all contact with him. And for me, um, it was definitely uncalled for. It was detestable. And a year after that, incident, my family's divorce was finalized, and I was just going through this weird spiral, and but in despite of all that, in the midst of all that, a month after that incident, I was still in college still, had classes and all that, so I didn't have a chance to visit my mom until Christmas, and so after finals, I went home, visited my mom back home in Houston, and I also visited my dad in jail, and it's not like where they have the, the plexiglass the telephone thing where you talk to the person on the other side. Uh, There was still the telephone thing, but it was a, a TV screen. It was about that big. It was a very small TV screen. And my dad, he's kind of a small man, so I could only see the top of his head on the TV screen, so it was already a very awkward conversation. And then I asked him why. I mean, who wouldn't ask that question? And he stubbornly denied that he did anything wrong. He said and claimed that my mom and sister set him up. And even though that was a very ridiculous statement for him to make, I still continued in the conversation. Because at the time, I was a baby Christian. And so I was very energetic about the gospel, about talking about God. And so I asked my dad, where are you with God? Do you know Jesus? He dodged the questions. He refused to answer it. And so I decided I wouldn't push it any further at the time. And so I left the jail very discouraged. And so it was a very quiet Christmas that year with just my mom, my sister, and myself. And it was also around that same time in my life that I found out the military has a higher rate of divorce than in the civilian world. It seemed very odd to me that all these different things were lining up. I was in ROTC. My parents had just separated and eventually got divorced. I learned about that statistic But that that statistic became more than just a number to me. It became real because my own family was going through that same thing. My heart broke for those soldiers and their families that were falling apart because my own family was falling apart. It was also during the same time I was rethinking about what I wanted to do in the Army. At first, I thought I'll be an Arabic translator because at the time we were still over in Iraq and Afghanistan. I also thought about military intelligence. I thought about artillery or tanks. Um, but what was going on back home, and also I was very involved in college ministries, I just felt the Holy Spirit telling me, hey, what about chaplaincy? And I brushed it off. I thought, well, I really want to be a combat officer. I want to blow stuff up. But... I thought about it, oh, I'll I'll do that. I'll be an artillery or tank officer. I'll do that for a couple years. And when I get to captain, I'll switch over to chaplain because I'll know what it's like and I'll be able to relate with the soldiers. But in the end, the Lord, he got a hold of me and he, long story short, convinced me to just go straight to chaplain. And so on this way of being a chaplain the last five so years, I was also working on ministering to my family especially in the aftermath of Thanksgiving, especially to reaching out to my dad. And the oddest thing is, a year after my parents got divorced, my dad, he was medically retired, he was unable to work, but he ran out of his savings, and so he couldn't afford the apartment anymore. And he begged my mom to let him back into the house. I couldn't believe it, but she did. She let him back into the house, but on the condition that he slept downstairs on a cot. And during that entire time, I, my mom, I, call, I called her a saint. She was a real saint for doing that. And that gave me an opportunity to visit my dad whenever I visited back home, to visit mom. And so I would try talking with my dad, but he was a very reserved man. So it was very difficult to get him to open up. And one time I took him out to lunch. Um, we talked, I tried to talk with him, tried to make conversation with him. I talked about seminary, talked about church, talked about girls. But it wasn't entirely a, a lively conversation. It was, there was a lot of long, awkward silences. And at times, I, I would think it was, it was a lost cause to try to talk to my dad, to try to reach out to him, to try to share the gospel with him. I would think, yeah, he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a good dad either. But neither was the thief who hung on the cross next to Jesus. And he got into heaven. I desperately wanted my dad to know Jesus, to know the joy of God, and for reconciliation in my very dysfunctional family. But then it got to a point in seminary that had a very heavy workload, a lot of papers, a lot of books to read, and so I had to focus. I couldn't visit back home to as often. And shortly after the new year last year, I got a text from my mom that Dad—he was in the hospital. Wait, what, how, why? He was complaining about chest pains and shortness of breath. And so it turns out he has COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and congestive heart failure. He was a smoker his entire life, so it wasn't entirely a surprise. So I drove from here, Austin, all the way to Houston. um, And I stayed overnight with my dad before, in the morning, driving back here for work. He had an oxygen mask on the entire time, and he didn't really talk much. But before I left, I read out, out loud, the Gospel of Mark to him. Because at the time, I was thinking, this might be the very last time I could talk to him and see him. This might be the last time I could share the Gospel with him. And so I did. I read through the entire Gospel of Mark with him, because it was the shortest one. Um, And then I left, but... He barely said anything to me. He barely talked. I don't feel like he acknowledged the fact that I read the gospel to him, to him. So I was very discouraged on that ride back here. And I asked my mom her medical opinions, and she's a nurse, about his prognosis. And she said that pe- most people with COPD and congestive heart failure, they, they, they're able to live for several years with medicine. And so I thought, that's, that's great. I, I have some more time to spend with my dad to try to reach out to him. But three weeks later, I woke up to a text from my mom that he died. And so I drove back home for a week to stay with my mom for a week with my family to plan and prepare for the memorial service. And I volunteered to be the family representative for the eulogy. And in the eulogy, I was writing about and I was thinking about about sharing my concerns about how, if he was saved. And how I struggled to share the gospel with him. But before I gave my eulogy, the pastor, he opened the floor for friends who shared their eulogies. And in their eulogies, they, they shared about how my dad, even though he was a very reserved, quiet man, he was also quiet about his faith. In fact, the night before, my mom shared a story with my, my sister and I about something that happened several nights before he died. And my mom was on the computer, and my Daddy was probably lying on the couch or something. They were just chilling, and he was just talking to himself, or at least that's what my mom said. And so she asked him, "What are you doing? Why are you talking to yourself?" And he said, "Oh, I'm just talking to Jesus, asking uh, if he would let me see Irvin get ordained, and uh, maybe if he'll uh, be able to go back to the Philippines and preach at church there." What? I mean, who's this man? What did you do to my father? Where is he? And in in all these very small little moments, I heard the voice of Jesus. I heard the voice of Jesus telling me he was being faithful to my family every single step of the way, especially in the midst of all the ugly brokenness. And in this psalm, we can hear the voice of Jesus. We hear his cries of anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was whipped by Pontius Pilate when he hung on the cross for hours. Our Lord, he felt like his enemies were exalting and prevailing over him. He cried out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he persevered. He sought through because he knew that as the Son of God, that there was a purpose to his suffering. He was paying for our debts. He was going to prevail over Satan and over death. He was displaying the fullness of God's love on that cross. And so Jesus, he willingly went to the cross to suffer on our behalf because he knew that there would be rejoicing on the other side of it. He knew that the Father, he was going to be faithful to him and to us. And so he was going to be faithful to his Father and to us. And there are so many examples we see of Jesus taking the time to fully feel the weight of suffering of pain when he went to lazarus tomb he wept in the shortest verse in the bible even though it's the shortest verse in the bible it wasn't just a couple tears he ugly cried he was on his knees weeping for his very dear friend he felt the complete weight of that sadness of the death of his friend and even though he knew he was going to resurrect lazarus he still took the time to feel And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he was going to hang on the cross, Jesus told his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the death. Remain here and watch. And as he prayed, he was in so much mental and emotional agony, he literally sweated blood. So even though Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind, he knew the entire plan. He knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to die on the cross, and he still did it. He did it because he knew it would be worth it in the end. It would be worth it in the end. That there would be joy after all. We too, we, we must allow ourselves to feel the full weight of our suffering. We shouldn't minimize it. At the same time, we shouldn't let it crush us. We shouldn't let it eat us up and drive us away from God. But rather, we should let it drive us closer to God. We must let it. Allow us to rejoice in God and who he is. Because he's the God who is right there. He's the God who is right there in the midst of our pain. So let us remind ourselves that God is in total control. That he is going to bring all things to newness, to recreation. He's going to send his son back and restore all things. And so let us repeat the end of the psalm the way that david prayed let us trust in his steadfast love let us rejoice in his salvation let us sing to the lord because he has dealt bountifully with us let us pray lord father god i thank you for this opportunity to share the word with with my brothers and sisters here to to preach your word to share this very personal story not to um, be all um, showing how great i am but rather to show how great you are to show that you've been working through my life and also every single person's life here in this room and every single Christian in the entire world and all of history that you are faithful to us, that you love us, and you're always with us. Let us remember that as we partake of this meal, of the bread and the wine, of the body and the blood. Let us remind ourselves of who you are. Amen. Amen.